Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning. For those who don't know a little about me, I am a psychiatrist, and uh, for the la- more than 20 years I've been studying the interface between biblical principles and God's design uh, and modern neuroscience for, for mental and relational health. And I founded a not-for-profit Christian ministry in 2010 called Come and Reason Ministries. And we have a website. This is a picture of the website. And there's a sign-up sheet over there. If you want to be on our email list, just give us your email address and we'll put you on the email list. But I'm putting this up here so you know. Um, Come and Reason Ministries, we got the name from Isaiah 1, 18. Come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. Uh, God is inviting us to reason with him. And in that reasoning with him, there's a cleansing process. The truth will set you free, as Jesus said. It's part of uh, the, the battle between good and evil. It's a battle for your mind and heart. So on our website, we have a lot of resources that are free for you. Uh, this is what it looks like. You have a, a uh, different um, menus that you can select along here. If you select the media menu, then there's a whole bunch of resources that are free for you to access. Uh, for instance, the God in Your Brain seminar, these lectures are available. If you hit those, you can stream and watch it, or you can get an audio, or you can download the PowerPoint slides. Uh, or get the podcast, or if you want, and say, I'd like to share this with somebody that, that doesn't really go to the computer much, email us. We'll send you a free DVD with no mailing charges or any costs associated with that if you want to share it with somebody. That's, what, that's about our ministry and a lot of resources there. Have you ever been one of the first to know something was wrong, to identify a problem? Have you ever had that difficulty of identifying a problem when somebody in leadership, some subject matter expert has already determined no problem exists. When I was in my second year of residency, a young man was admitted to my uh, inpatient service who was acting strangely, odd behavior, mood swings, anger outbursts, strange thought patterns. And when I took my uh, assessment of him, though, he also had some history that wasn't really consistent with psychiatric problems. Like he'd go to bed in his bedroom, fall asleep in his bed, but he'd wake up in the morning on a couch in the living room and have no recollection or memory of having moved. He, on his physical exam, he had subtle signs indicating that there was an, something neurologic going on with him. And so I ordered an MRI of his brain. But back when I did my residency, MRIs were new and very expensive, required the sign-off of the chief of neurology in order to get the MRI, But my patient had already been evaluated by the chief of neurology before being admitted to my service, had an EEG, an electroencephalogram, and a CAT scan done of his brain, and he was determined by the chief of neurology to not have a neurological problem. So when I ordered the MRI, it was denied. I went back and did a more detailed history, found more indicators that this was neurological, went to my faculty staff member, presented my case, and and she went to the chief of neurology and said, hey, I know you don't think it's a neural problem, but this is a teaching hospital. Can't we just get the MRI for teaching and educational purposes? And he still denied it. I did a deeper dive and talked to the family and found more indicators and went back to my faculty, and, and I was persuasive enough that she went to the hospital commander and uh, he ordered the MRI, and when they did the MRI, my patient had a massive tumor uh, invading both sides of the brain. And when they went back uh, to the CAT scan and looked at the CAT scan they previously done, the tumor was actually there, but it was so large they thought it was artifact and they ignored it. Have you ever been in that position where you were one of the first to identify a problem, but people in authority 
determine no problem exists. I think there's something wrong in Christianity. Domestic violence rates are no different in Christian homes than non-Christian homes. Child abuse rates are no different in Christian homes than non-Christian homes. Alcohol and drug addiction, no different. Pornography use, no different. And within Christianity, according to the Christian Encyclopedia, there are 34,000 different Christian groups all arguing amongst themselves of what this verse means or that verse means. We're fragmented, and we're supposed to be one in Christ. Paul prophesied at the end of time, he says, mark this, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that sound like our society today? But notice this, having a form of godliness but denying the power. He actually isn't talking about the agnostics and the atheists. He's talking about those who present themselves as godly, but yet they struggle with all these same problems. There's something wrong in Christianity. In this presentation, we will expose an infection of thoughts, a distortion of belief that keeps good people trapped in addiction and violent cycles, and present a remedy to bring healing and prepare people to meet Jesus. How do you determine whether something is right or wrong? Do you look to a higher authority, a parent, a teacher, political leader, pastor, priest, pope, deity? Do you look for some external authority to evaluate it, give you the answer, and tell you what's right or wrong? Do you look for a consensus among your peer groups, perhaps a have a code, a system of rules, a creed, a set of established laws? Do you look for some authoritarian structure to tell you right or wrong? Do you have some other standard? Well, I've got a good feeling. You know, I, it's my feelings. If I feel right, then, then it must be right or wrong. My feelings are what guide me. It's some other standard you use. We will examine this morning seven levels of moral decision-making, how do you tell right or wrong, so that we shall come together in that oneness of our faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, we shall become mature people, reaching the very height of Christ's full stature. Then we shall no longer be children, carried by the waves and blown about by every shifting wind of the teaching of deceitful people, who lead others into error by the tricks they invent. Eric Wright was an EMT working at Erlanger Hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee. His wife, Aline, is uh, a RN working there. In Chattanooga's uh, Erlanger Hospital, is a regional stroke center. And I don't know if you've kept up with, with modern medicine, but today, if you're having a stroke and you get to the hospital in under 120 minutes, 90 minutes is better, but under 120 minutes, most of the time now they can reverse the stroke. They can put clot busters and other things in there and go in and, and, and save the brain. It's very exciting. One night, about 11.30 at night, Eileen began to have paralysis of the side of her face. She was having trouble forming words and couldn't get speech. Her hand was tingling and getting numb. And they both recognized these were signs that she was perhaps having a stroke. They live seven miles from the hospital. They know time is critical. What should they do? Should they take time, call 911, wait for an ambulance to be stat- dispatched, get there, um, in, do an assessment and put her in, take her? Or should he just get in the car seven miles and get to the, get to the hospital? Well, they decide, let's, let's just get to the hospital. As soon as they get out on the street, though, 
the speed limit is posted at 35 miles per hour. What should he do? And I want you to think right and wrong. What is the right action to take? Should he obey the speed limit or should he break the speed limit? In other words, should he break the law or should he obey the law? Well, he decided to speed, but he came to two intersections with a red light. What is the right action to take? Should he stop late at night, look directions? There's no traffic out here at all. Nothing's coming either way. Uh, and then, if that's the case, go on through the light. Or should he sit and wait for the light to change? I've, you know, some of these lights around here, they, 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 two, three minutes, you're sitting there. Uh, you know, uh, this happened this morning on our way here. He's like sitting there. Nobody's coming. I'm just waiting and waiting. I mean, should he sit there and wait? Or should he, nothing's coming, go through the light? What's the right action to take? Well, he decided to run the red light. But a Chattanooga police officer saw him pull in behind him with the blue lights going, siren going. Now, they're only less than a mile from the hospital. You can see the hospital towers right up ahead. What's the right action for him to take? The law requires that when an officer of the law indicates you pull over, that you have to pull over. Should he obey the law or should he break the law and get his wife to the hospital? What's the right thing to do? Well, he decided to keep on going to the hospital. He got to the hospital, jumped out, ran around, picked his wife up to carry her in. The officer jumps out of his car and says, freeze, put your hands on the hood. And the officer comes over to, to, to grab him. What's the right action to take? Should he drop his wife, put his hands on the hood? Should he just carry his wife through the door into the emergency room, get her help? Well, he actually shouldered past the officer into the ER, got his wife in for help. But he was arrested for assault on a police officer, disorderly conduct, reckless endangerment, two counts of traffic signal violation, and expired registration. <laughs> Did Eric do right or wrong. It all depends on your level of moral development. Level one, how do you tell whether something's right or wrong? Level one, reward and punishment. This is the most basic level of determining right and wrong. It is right if you get a reward for it. It is wrong if you get punished for it. This is the level of the Nazi soldiers who put people in the gas chamber. And they were interviewed, why did you do it? Because we would have been arrested and court-martialed. We didn't want to get punished, so we followed our orders. This is very basic. This is the level of a slave. And in the Bible, this was the ancient Israelites while they were slaves in Egypt, functioning on the reward and punishment level. At level one, a ruler must be powerful. Rulers establish their right to rule by powerful displays of might and vengeance on their enemies. Mercy, or failure to punish, is viewed as weakness and immoral by level one thinkers. People at this level see a God of mercy who doesn't inflict punishment as a marshmallow God and insists God must use his power to torment and inflict death. But God meets people where they are, at their level of understanding, just like a parent with a child, and, be, and meets them where they are to lead them to a better place. And so God took vengeance on the gods of Egypt. You understand that the ten plagues of Egypt were not directed at the people of Egypt. They were all directed at ten different gods of Egypt, showing that the gods of Egypt were powerless. And it says in Deuteronomy 29.6, why did God do it? I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. I'm more powerful than all those Egyptian gods. But level one is so primitive, it actually doesn't require a brain. Thinking is completely sidelined. 
animals, plants, bacteria avoid painful stimuli and grow towards rewarding stimuli. This level of functioning is not worthy of human beings created in the image of God. And it's Satan's goal to reduce us to brute beasts, creatures of instinct, operating at level one. Level two, marketplace exchange. This is the quid pro quo. You do something for me in return for something of agreed value. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. This is ancient Israel when the law was read at Sinai and the Israelites said, all the Lord says we will do. We've got a deal. We'll do this and he'll bless us. This is the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth mentality. At this level, vengeance is a moral duty. To not pay someone back with equal amounts of pain and suffering is considered immoral. You see many places in the Middle East that operate at this level. This is also the health wellness gospel. If you do these rituals, you say this prayer uh, for 30 days, and at the end of the 30 days, your territory will be expanded. God will bless you. This is the level two thinking. You do your part, God does this. We'll make a deal. At level two... Requires, barely requires a brain. Thinking at this level is minimal. You know, animals like dolphins and monkeys and dogs can do lots of things in order to get a treat. Motive remains self-focused. Again, not worthy of beings created in the image of God. Level three, social conformity. Right and wrong is determined by what the consensus of the group is doing. This is the adolescent who says, hey, mom, everyone else is doing it. Individual vengeance is not allowed at this level, but group punishment is considered mandatory. You see this in gangs and other groups that, they ha- that the group will punish somebody who breaks the gang's rules. And the gang, the group, decides what, what's normal. This is ancient Israel when they wanted kings. Hey, everybody else has got kings. We want them too. That must be the right way to go. And when they would collectively punish stone and ostracize lawbreakers. Level three doesn't really require a lot of thinking. It ex- externalizes away the responsibility for determining right and wrong to the group. It looks to others to determine what's right and wrong. Many herd animals follow the crowd, even if it's over the cliff. Again, not worthy of beings created in the image of God. Level four, law and order. Right and wrong is determined by a codified system of rules, judges, and imposed punishments. Judgment is deferred to the properly elected or otherwise constituted authorities. Authority figures are rarely questioned. He must be right. He's the judge. He's the mayor. He's the president. He's the pastor. He's the pope. He's God. He must be right. Who are we to question the one in authority? And if you think that this sounds blasphemous, just remember when God came to destroy Sodom, Abraham didn't say, well, you're the Lord. Okay. Abraham said, wait a second, Lord. Hold on. How about if there's 50, 40, 30, 20, 10? Shouldn't the Lord of all the earth do what's right? He questioned. And he was called a friend of God. When God came to destroy Israel, if you remember, told Moses, I'm going to wipe them out, start over with you. Moses didn't say, okay, you're God, let's do it. Uh, Who am I to question? He goes, wait a second. Lord, you can't do it. In fact, if you do it, I don't even want to be in your book. Wipe wipe my name out of your heavenly book. I don't want to be there. He questioned. Two people in the Old Testament were called friends of God, Abraham and Moses. And they were the two who questioned him. Come, let us reason together. Yes, God wants us to do this. Ancient Israel, this is ancient Israel at the time of Christ, when they repeatedly said to him, we have a law, and Jesus, you keep breaking our law. You keep breaking our rules. Level four. This is much of the modern world with our imposed laws, our judicial system, and our coercive enforcement. Do it or else. This, this is the minimal level of thinking. 
This only requires you know the rules. What does the law say? You don't actually have to understand why. You just have to know the rule and obey the rule. Don't have to consider variables. If the rule says it, you do it. Security at this level is found in rule keeping. I can't be punished if I keep the rules. If I'm on base, you can't tag me out, God. And this is many people. They have their understanding of what base is and what the right rules are, and they keep their rules. They feel very safe because they're keeping their rules. Or it's found in legal loophole rule keeping. You have somebody else who kept the rules perfectly for you, and you claim their rule keeping in your behalf to be applied to your legal ledger in a heavenly accounting system somewhere, and now you claim you don't have to keep the rules because somebody substituted for you. Level five, love for other people, right, is determined by doing what's actually beneficial for others, regardless of the law. See, people have value regardless of the law. African Americans have value and should be treated equal regardless of Jim Crow laws. Right is determined not by a checklist of rules, but by doing that which is actually good for another. This was Jesus healing on the Sabbath, socializing with tax collectors, touching the lepers. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. If you think of the Good Samaritan, it's a very powerful story. In that story, there's a Levite, there's a priest, there was a wounded man, and there was the Samaritan. And who's the one in the story that's right with God? How many Sabbaths did he keep? How many sacrifices at temple did he make? How many tithes did he pay? What diet did he, did he have? What, did he do all of the things the law required of the Jews? He didn't do them. They, the Levite and the priest did. They were keeping the law, but they weren't right with God because he was actually doing what the law really required, which was to loving other people, where those were, they were keeping the rules while not loving other people. Level five is the first level that moves the decision-making away from self to others. It's not really what's good for me. It's how can I bless another? Requires consideration of various options. This level does not require high cognitive intelligence, but some level of emotional intelligence, compassion and concern for other people. And I know many people, my, I had an aunt, she's deceased now, who had mental retardation because of anoxic brain injury at birth. She would never pass a Bible quiz. She only learned how to write her name. But she loved other people. She was, care- she was always helpful to others. You see, she had a heart that came to love others, and she loved Jesus. But she would never be able to pass a theological exam. It's not about high cognitive intelligence. It's about the heart growing to love other people. It's about right motive, not right answers on a Bible quiz. Except you become like the little children. You're not into the kingdom of heaven. Level six, principle-based living. This is understanding God's design law, the protocols upon which he has built life to operate. And right and wrong is determined by living in harmony, or not, with those design protocols. One doesn't do something because the law says so, but because it actually works that way. This was Jesus, of course, the way he lived his entire life, and the apostles after Pentecost when they were enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Not, Not only do we have concern for other people, but we realize how God constructed life to operate. We reason through cause and effect. We reason through. Come, let us reason together, as God says. Mature individuals don't use illegal drugs because they're illegal, but because they violate the laws of health. And then when society changes their laws and makes them legal, the mature people still don't use them because they're still violating the laws of health. This is design law thinking. This is level six, maturity. In level seven, understanding friend of God. 
not only love for God and others, not only understanding God's design for life, but understands and intelligently participates in God's purposes. God's purposes. John 15, 15, Jesus talking to his disciples said, I no longer call you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from the Father. This is level seven. He wants us to be his understanding friends who intelligently participate in him to help God achieve his purpose on earth. As Jesus said to his disciples, if the Father sent me, so send I you. We have a purpose to fulfill on this planet for him. And by the way, I'll just take an aside and tell you this. There's nothing more dangerous on planet Earth than someone on a mission for God who doesn't actually know God. And many people want to jump to the purpose-driven life and do a purpose for God who haven't actually come to know God yet. It becomes very dangerous. So level seven, Jesus operated this level, as will all those who are ready for translation at the second coming. The scripture describes those who are ready for translation in these words, uh, being sealed in their foreheads with the seal of God. And you know, the Holy Spirit seals us with the attributes. We become Christ-like. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And this is their character traits. Those who do not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Think what that's describing. These are people who are not driven by the survival drive, me first, they're willing, they're not driven by self-protection. They do not love their life so much. as They're going to do what's right, even if it hurts them. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, on the plain of Dura, and so forth. So love is the basis of life, the principle of other-centeredness leads to values of modesty, humility, wise stewardship of money. People at level seven would, would live this way. Level seven would have no problem with avoiding uh, expensive jewelry or flashy cars or clothes designed simply to make self the center all the time so everybody looks at me. But level four people would make up rules, such as no cosmetics or no jewelry, and never notice a person who buys an expensive suit or a sensing coat every week because it's not on the list. Why so many laws? Have you ever wondered why so many laws in the Bible, so many pro- prohibitions, so many uh, instructions. It's because people operating at level four and below. This is why so many laws given to Moses. Think about in our society today. If we had a copy, paper copy, of every law in this city, in this county, in this state, and this nation, how, how big a room do we need? Okay? Uh, you see, why do we have so many laws? Because when you operate at level four and below, you need a law for every circumstance, every situation, every variable has to be coded and accounted for, and it just becomes multiplying the levels of law. But when you reach level five and above, it can be summed up in two, love for God and love for others. And when you really love God and you really love others, think about it. You won't murder. You won't steal. You won't bear false witness. You won't commit adultery. You, all these things that we make laws about, you won't embezzle. You, all this, it, you won't happen because... It, The law is written on the heart. That's the new covenant. I will write my law on your heart and mind, which is the protocols of love. Let's consider a child brushing their teeth through the seven levels of moral development. Why do do people brush their teeth? At level one, they brush their teeth. This is reward and punishment because it's wrong not to brush because mommy will be mad and I'll be punished. It's right to brush because I'll get praised. That's level one. I have two grandchildren, four and six, and I've watched them transition from one to two. And they transition pretty quickly once they get old enough to understand language from one to two. It's either the parent or the child will make the transition to a deal. Uh, Mom, if I brush my teeth, will you read me a bedtime story? Or the parent might say, if you don't brush your teeth, there's no bedtime story. Before bed tonight, we've moved from punishment to deal-making, level two. 
Very quick. I see parents in here nodding their head. You see how that goes. Level three, social conformity. You brush your teeth so you won't be teased at school, so you'll be accepted. Level four, you may have a codified system of expected behaviors for the adolescent child that they have to do certain things, and if they do certain things, they maintain certain privileges, but if they don't maintain their behaviors, then they lose a privilege. So if they don't brush their teeth, they lose a cell phone for a day, so they, they brush their teeth. Level five, love for other people, realizing it would inconvenience one's parents to take them to the dentist and pay their dental bills, and they love their parents. They don't want to be a burden to their parents, so they brush their teeth to keep from being a burden to their parents. Level six, we understand the second law of thermodynamics, design law. If you don't put energy into a system, it will decay, even if you can't say that. Um, But you understand how it works, and so you brush your teeth because you want to keep them healthy. And level seven, understanding friend of God not only loves others and understands God's design, but realizes your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and knows that failure to brush will lead to decay, increase sickness, undermine your health, and thus undermine your ability to fulfill God's purposes. So you brush your teeth to be a good steward, to maintain your healthfulness so that you can fulfill God's purposes in life. Now, do you recognize that at all seven levels, teeth are being brushed? I want you to recognize, but this is critical. Only level five and above can be trusted. Level four and below require some external threat or oversight to enforce the behavior. Level four and below have self-centered motivations. There hasn't been a heart change. At level five is the first level where it's actually internalized and the law is written on the heart. So this idea of imposed law versus design law. Think about this for a moment. God is the creator. He builds space, time, energy, matter, life. His laws are the laws upon which reality operates. Law of gravity, laws of physics, laws of health, even the moral laws or design laws, protocols upon which he's constructed life to exist. You can't, and I can't, make space, time, energy, matter, life. So we make up rules imposed rules that we threaten to punish you if you break those. We call those laws. Level one through four sees the world through the lens of God's law working like human law, a system of imposed rules that require God to act as a judicial magistrate, overseeing, following us around, writing down every bad thing we've ever done in an accounting book in heaven, and all the bad behaviors are going to have to be accounted for in some way, and somebody's got to be punished for those bad behaviors, and it's not you, it's going to have to be Jesus who's going to be punished in your place. If you kept that fund in your place, then you'll be applied to your record book, and the record book will be raised. That thing will be raised. This is level one through four thinking, impose rules. Level five through seven, though, see God as creator and realize that we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're born with a condition we didn't choose, but yet is terminal to us. This is why we're dead in trespass and sin, and God sent Christ in order to heal and restore us. Imagine an HIV-infected man and an HIV-infected woman get together, and they have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. Nothing. That's right. But does the baby still have a condition which, if unremedied, will result in its death? That's every human being since Adam and Eve, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. It's not our fault. It's not the baby's fault. We're not guilty for being born this way. Yet, we still have a condition which, with, without remedy, will result in our death. Now, if there's a remedy, HIV baby grows up, there's a free remedy offered, here's antiviral meds, provided for free, but the adult child, the uh, person of accountability, refuses to take the remedy. Will that be their fault? Yes. 
That's the situation of a human being. God has provided remedy through Jesus Christ, and it's up to us to accept that. So we aren't held accountable for the condition. We're held accountable for refusing the remedy. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. God wants us to grow up because staying as children on infants, on milk, means we're not yet righteous. We, we haven't been set right. Another word for being set right is justified, justification. That's putting us right, putting what's wrong right, justify. Christ-like, uh, childlike Christianity requires ongoing supervision, oversight, external threats to do what's right. It has a form of godliness, but it denies the power. Immature Christianity in our youth. Have you ever wondered why so many young people leave the church? I'm going to suggest to you the reason they leave the church is because they've never been taught above level four reasons for doing things. God has a law, and if you break his law, he keeps track of it. And he will one day have to punish you for breaking his law. Uh, Remember our toothbrushing analogy a moment ago? If you taught your kids to brush their teeth, and they never understood beyond level four. You have a system in your home of rules and expected behaviors, and if they don't brush their teeth, they lose the cell phone for a day, or they'll get punished in some way. Something below level four, level four and below. And then they finally leave home, but they don't have any reason beyond that. What are they likely to do when they leave home? Stop brushing their teeth. And this is why so many kids leave the church, because they're taught things that are rule-based. They aren't taught the reasons. Now, does that mean there's no place for rules? Absolutely not. Kids need rules. They need tricks because they don't understand. God provides structure. God provides rules and guidelines. But he wants us to grow up to understand why he did it. Gives you great insight into the Old Testament. People look at the Old Testament and say, yeah, but he was punishing. He was threatening all the time. I want you to imagine you have a oh, four or five-year-old child, and, you're, and you've instructed your child many times, don't play in the street. One day you're sitting on the porch and your child is, is riding their big wheel down the driveway, heading straight into the street, laughing, is on, having a great time, but there's traffic coming and they don't look like they're going to stop. Do you sit up on the porch and you go, well, I've given instructions and I'm confident that, that they'll stop? No, you don't. They're too far, to, too far to run to get to in time. So what do you do? You yell. Don't you yell? But how about if they're, you ever had a child that had a little unruly mood, didn't really want to listen right then? Okay, so your child's a little unruly, doesn't want to listen, they keep going. Do you threaten? If you don't stop, I'm going to spank you. Now think through this with me for a minute. If they do stop, do you spank them? No, they stopped. If they don't stop and they get hit by a car, do you get your belt off and go out and spank them? You're laughing at me. But, but seriously, think that through. We don't, do you? No. Now, if they don't stop and they get by a car, is there a punishment for their disobedience? Yes, there's a definite punishment. But does it come from you? No, it doesn't. You see, now, in the, if the child does stop and they don't get hit, and, and we were to go to the child and say, why is it wrong to ride out in the street? Why is it wrong to do that? What's the child going to say? In the child's mind, what are they going to say? mommy will punish or daddy will punish. They said, don't do it. That's why it's wrong. 
See, you as a parent, because you love your child, and they can't understand how reality works. They don't understand the law of physics. They don't understand how their body would be crushed by a car. Uh, you step in between them and reality, and you take on your shoulders the responsibility of being the source of inflicted pain and suffering to protect them. This is God in the Old Testament. God is constantly stepping in and allowing himself to be viewed as the source of inflicted pain and suffering because they don't understand reality. He loves us that much as you would love your child. And you wouldn't care if your child went in and said, I got the meanest mommy in the world. You wouldn't care. You love them that much to let them misunderstand. That's Old Testament. But we don't teach our kids that. We teach them only rules and they never understand reality behind it, many of them walk away. But when you teach them how reality works and God's design law and how it applies their life right now and how it actually uh, changes them either for health or for worse, most people will stay in harmony and stay. You know, a doctor cannot get a patient well in violation of the laws of health. All interventions, when you see a doctor, they're working to restore you back to harmony with the laws of health. That's what they're working to do. God can't get people well spiritually, mentally, emotionally, in violation of his design laws for life. He's always working to write his law in our heart and mind to restore us back to harmony with him. So we must help our young people to grow up and understand his character of love, his methods, and how he's designed life to work. So what prevents maturing? Staying on infant formula. And what is the theological formula of infants? Don't get it from me. Very next verse in Hebrews. Hebrews, 1, 6, and 2, uh, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary or basic teachings about Christ and take forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Repentance from acts, that's behavior, that's deeds, that's the do's and the don'ts, the commandments, the legal behavioral religion, the keeping track of this stuff. That's the basic stuff. This is the starting point. This is the infant stage. You see, we must be born into the world in order to grow physically. We must be born again and repent in order to grow spiritually. Everybody with me? The law, the written law, initially convicts us. It's a mirror we look in. We see there's something deformed in us, something defective, and we know something's wrong. And this leads us to repentance. It's It's a diagnostic tool to show us that we need something. And when people repent that first time, there's that euphoric joy. If you remember that first time you came to Christ, free from the guilt, free from the shame. It's a wonderful experience. But sadly, many people stay as babes with chronic conviction of guilt, running to Jesus and confessing their sins and repenting, feeling the grace of God in their heart, feeling freed from the, from the guilt of that act, only to go back out and repeat it. They never actually grow up beyond that level. Healthy repentance is when we realize the truth of God's design for our life, and we're not simply sorrowful for the act We actually want change of heart to be removed from us. What is it that leads us to do those acts in the first place? We want to be different in in our internal drives and motives. And we surrender ourselves in trust to Jesus. This is David praying in the Old Testament. Father, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's really biblical repentance. A change of the inner motives of the heart. 
So what prevents growing up? Level four and below theologies with legal descriptions and legal solutions for those who don't leave the church. They end up trapped in addiction and violent cycles. Why is that the case? Because they're told a false legal solution with the form of godliness but no power to heal. Let me give you an example. Your child never understood um, beyond level four, brushing their teeth. So age 20, they move out and get on their own, and they go, finally, free from all those rules. Free from all those rules. <laughs> Don't have to brush my teeth anymore. Well, the first week or two, they might be a little nervous, looking over shoulders to see if some punishment's coming. But no, nobody punished. Ha <laughs> ha, I knew my mom and dad. They were nuts. They were putting all this strict stuff on me. And uh, 18 months, 24 months, 36 months go by, and one day they are in pain. They're suffering. They're hurting really bad with cavities. They call mom and dad and say, Mom, Dad, I've gone off the reservation. I've rebelled. You've taught me to do better. I, I, I went and did my own thing, and, and I'm hurting, and, and, and I don't know what to do. And you say, it's okay. We have somebody who knows how to help people who've gone off into wild living, and, and I'll make an appointment to meet with our, one of our pastors at the church. An expert will help you. So you meet with the pastor, and you're told that, that what you need to do is accept the legal toothbrushing of your older brother who came to earth and brushed his teeth perfectly. And if, and if you do a certain ritual to be renewed, then you can have his perfect toothbrushing presented to the heavenly dentist. Your, your older brother will be examined instead of you, and his record of toothbrushing will be placed in your heavenly chart. You will be declared to have perfect teeth even though you don't. Just believe that you do. You claim you believe it, but you leave in just as much pain with just as much decay as when you arrived. That's penal substitution theology. You come and say, Jesus took my place. He lived perfectly. I claim his righteousness. It goes into my account. We're declared to be righteous even though we're not, and we leave with just as much corruption as when we came. Genuine righteousness and justification is actually being set right in your heart with God, not in a book, in your heart. The natural heart, the Bible tells us, is at enmity with God. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and we naturally do not trust him. We're against him. It says Abraham, Romans 4, 3, trusted God and then was recognized to be righteous or set right. His heart was changed from the enmity and distrust to trust, and that his heart was put right. That's justification. In trust, you open the heart to uh, God and we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit who takes the victory of Christ and reproduces in us. We become partakers of the divine nature, Peter says. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, Paul says. We get circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, transformation of the inner person, the heart of stone is removed, the heart of flesh is put in. This is what's happening. It's a reality transformational experience. So what is immaturity? Immaturity is level four and below. Self-centered theologies that focus on avoiding punishment and getting reward. Or making a deal. Or getting approval and acceptance. Or avoiding legal trouble, penal legal theologies. What is maturity? Level five and above. Love, other-centered theologies that focus on love for God and others, living in harmony with God's design, and fulfilling God's purposes. Why, and we're going to close, uh, wrap up on reviewing, why did Christ have to die for our salvation? The atonement through the seven levels. Level one, reward and punishment. Well, because God said don't do something, they did it. God got offended and responded with angry vengeance, taking the life of Jesus in our place. This is the satisfaction theory of atonement. 
Level two, because Satan now had rights to the planet Earth and claimed the lives of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, and God struck a bargain with the devil to exchange the life of Christ for life of humans, or Aslan had to give his life to the white witch to free the sons of Adam. This is the ransom theory of atonement. Level three, so that we all agree that God's government is fair in dealing with sin. This is the governmental theory of atonement. Level four, to pay the legal penalty the law demanded and the heavenly judge imposed. The law must be kept. Man broke the law. Someone had to pay the penalty. Jesus paid that penalty. The integrity of the law is maintained. This is penal substitution theology. Level five, because he loved us too much to let us go, and his death was the means to reach us with his love and restore us to trust. This is moral influence theory. Level six, it was the only means to fix what sin had done to God's creation. When mankind sinned, they deviated from God's design for life, and their condition was terminal. Christ came to fix what sin did to this creation. Thus, he who knew no sin became sin for us at substitution. But here's the reason. So that we might become the righteousness of God, to be actually restored to righteousness. This is the Christus Victor and the recapitulation theories of atonement. Level seven. Christ died to reveal truth and win us to trust. John 8, 32, you know the truth, the truth will set you free. To destroy death, 2 Timothy 1, 10, by his, death, he just, um, he, by his death, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Destroy sin and Satan, uh, Hebrews 2, 14, by his death, he destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and restore humanity back to God's original design. Uh, 1 John 3.8, he came to destroy the devil's work, and the devil has worked to efface the image of God in man and put Satan's image where God should be. Christ restored the image of God in man and secured the universe unfallen in its innocence. This is, uh, for, this is Colossians 1.20. All things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. This is the healing reality. Atonement is at one mint, being at one, united to God, having the law written on the heart, operating with the mind of Christ, partaking of the divine nature, restoring creation back to God's original design. Doing right because it's actually right, and that actually pleases God. Neither God nor God's law change. What changes our understanding of God and how his laws work, and the human species is changed back to harmony with God's design and law. We understand that God, through history, has been speaking to people at all levels of moral development. And so we see in Scripture level one talk from God because he's talking to level one people, trying to reach them where they're at. But it's a mistake to stay stuck at earlier levels of understanding and refuse to mature to more mature levels of understanding. So I'm going to run through real quickly those atonement metaphors and show you there's actually a level seven way to understand every one of those because most of those you'll find in scripture, like ransom and so forth. There's a mature way. Satisfaction theory. Creation, Romans chapter eight, all nature groans under the weight of sin. Creation is out of harmony with God and is in a terminal condition. God is like a parent whose child is dying of leukemia. And if you had a child dying of leukemia, let me ask you, what is the only thing that would truly satisfy you? A cure, a remedy that heals and saves. And so what do we read in Isaiah regarding the sacrifice of Christ? He will see the result of the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. And what is the result? The saving of his children. That's what satisfaction is, not to satisfy God's anger, wrath, or or attitude. It's to satisfy his love for us, and he wants to save those he loves. That's why he's satisfied. It was the only mechanism or means to save us. What about the ransom theory? Ransom is the price required to free someone in bondage. That's what a ransom does, functionally. Question, what holds us in bondage? 
Two things. The lies about God that we believe, Satan is the father of lies, and our own carnal nature. That's what holds us in bondage. What is it priced to set us free then? The truth and a new nature. Christ provides both of those. This is metaphorically described in John 6 when Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. And that got transferred at the Last Supper to another metaphor, bread and wine. This bread is my flesh, this wine is my blood, but it's flesh and blood. And if you think about when you eat a piece of bread to your body, the molecules actually break down and become building blocks of your actual body. That's what happens. When you take Jesus is the word made flesh, okay? the word of truth made flesh. When you partake of Jesus, you're partaking of truth. Those truths that God reveals become building blocks to your ideas, your understanding, your beliefs that form your individuality, your character. They become part of your understanding. They become part of your internal operations, and they, they nurture you, and, you, and they eventually lead you to trust Jesus based on the partaking of the truth, the word of God. And when you trust him, you open the heart, and the blood, the life is in the blood, is symbolic of the perfect life that Jesus lived, and you become a partaker of the divine life, the divine nature, as the Holy Spirit brings it to you. This is truth and a new nature. So we need both the truth to win us to trust, and we need the life of Christ reproduced in us. And so the ransom is the price necessary to fix us, to heal us. Governmental theory. God rules... Undesigned law, love, truth, liberty, and God can only heal minds and win this war in harmony with his designs. You see, what God actually wants from all of us, what does he want? He wants our love, he wants our trust, he wants our loyalty, he wants our devotion. Now think that through with me. Can you get love, trust, loyalty, devotion by threatening to kill people who don't love you, trust you, and are loyal to you? If you you don't love me, I'll kill you. I I take that back. I really won't. I'll just torture you for alternity. So love me. You see, it doesn't work. You can't get that. That's why in Zechariah 4, 6, the Bible says, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and love. Truth presented in love that wins the heart, and you open up and you receive the life of Christ, and you're renewed. So God wins this by operating on those very principles. Thus, God, government, design law, are sustained as the only method upon which life, health, and peace can operate. Penal substitution theory. This metaphor is actually not found in Scripture. It's based on a lie. Upon accepting the false imposed law view that God's law works like human law. Martin Luther, the reformer, made this theory up because he had a goal. And his goal was he wanted to destroy the doctrine of purgatory. Prior to Martin Luther, the world, the Christian world, was basically dominated by the Roman Catholic Church of the Dark Ages, and they taught the doctrine of purgatory, and that doctrine is that some sins are not purged or punished in this life, so when you die, the soul goes to a place where it will be punished in order to free it, uh, finish the punishment so it can go on into heaven. And they would then hold the society hostage with this potential threat, and you could then pay indulgences to the church to get your loved ones out of purgatory and send them to heaven, or pay ahead of time for yourself so you won't have to be punished in purgatory. It was a coercive ransom type thing. And so Martin Luther made up this doctrine to say all sins, past, present, and future, were placed on Christ at the cross and punished by God in Jesus. Therefore, there's no unpunished sins left to be punished, no purgatory. That's where this doctrine came from. He had a goal. But it's all based still on the idea 
that God's law works like human law, and if God doesn't inflict punishment, there's no justice. But if you understand design law, like your child running out in the street, you don't have to inflict punishment, but there is absolutely punishment for violating God's law. You can't avoid it. But it doesn't come out from the one who builds reality. It comes out from being out of harmony with his law. God added, you understand that God did add law, the Ten Commandments and ceremonial law. It's rightly understood in the setting of setting healthy boundaries. The law is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. It sets a protective hedge around us to protect us in our childhood, just like parents put rules around their kids to, while they're too childlike before they grow up. But once they grow up and they understand design law, we don't need the rule. When was the last time you brushed your teeth because your parents had a rule? Does that mean the rule was wrong? No, it's just not necessary anymore because it's now written on your heart. Moral influence theory is accepted as part of the reality that's needed to heal, but it's understood as being incomplete. We, are need, we do need to be one to trust, morally influenced by God, we want to trust, but we also need a remedy that actually fixes the damage that sin has caused to humanity. And, uh, and then we move on to the Christus Victor and Recapitulation theory. It's understood that Christ's victory over all opposition to his methods here on earth. Truth overcomes lies. Love overcomes selfishness. Jesus took up humanity, broken by Adam, and carried it to perfection, and he perfected the human being in his own journey. That's the healing, and the healing reality accepts moral influence theory as truth to destroy lies and win to trust, accepts Christ's victory and Satan's, uh, Christ's victory over Satan directly here and over the carnal nature, the temptation. You know, it says he was tempted in every way, just like we are yet without sin. He felt that pull in Gethsemane, that anguish that comes, Father, possible. But he overcame all of that temptation and restored perfect love in the humanity that he assumed. And, but this level realizes that Christ had a larger goal than simply planet Earth. All things in heaven and in Earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross, a larger purpose. Conflict in Christianity, if you understand these levels, you'll see a lot of, you'll have insight into some of the conflict in Christianity. Level four people are very anxious that the rules be kept. You'll see rule-keeping people that get very distressed if somebody doesn't abide by the certain rules of that organization. Level four people uh, are, have higher concentration in administrative positions often because they like rule, they like order, they like proper definitions of doctrines, and they often end up in administrative or leadership positions, not pastoral positions, administrative positions because they like the structure and the order. Level six and seven persons who want to discuss general principles are often called liberals. Level five people who seek to love others and show compassion to the sinner, the drug addict, the homosexual, are seen as having loose standards by level four and below. Level six and seven persons get bored with legalistic sermons aimed at level four or with the level one fiery hell and damnation threats. Level four members feel threatened when questions are raised that undermine their legal security or God as dictator. They don't use the word dictator. There's another magic word or special word that represents that to them, and that's called sovereignty. The so now, God is sovereign, no question about it, but my understanding is he's sovereign through the laws upon which he has created reality to operate and which he's constantly sustaining. But when level four people, they see God's sovereignty as all things are God's will or caused by God. And so I think it's uh, 70% of Americans believe that uh, the um, hurricanes and, and natural disasters are God punishing our country, that he's doing those things. 
Some are attracted to level two, the health wellness gospel. If you do the right rituals or say the right prayer, then God will bless you and you'll get more wealth and health. While others find such explanations fall short and get frustrated because they see bad things happening to good people. And it doesn't explain it. Growth through the seven levels is stepwise, meaning that you can't jump from level one to level seven. You have to master the next level in your practice and understanding before you can move on to the next level. And what is it that helps us grow? Is some distress in reality that doesn't fit our current understanding. This is why the Bible says rejoice in your trials and tribulations because they bring character. They help you mature. They help you wrestle through reality. What matters is function, not explanation. I know many people who live their lives at level five. They love other people, and they're constantly serving and helping other people. But whenever you give them a Bible quiz, they've been taught in their Bible, Bible classes penal substitution theology, so they give a penal substitutionary level four answer. But that's not where they live. They're actually level five, loving other people. Their hearts have been changed. They just have never actually thought through the Bible answer question stuff. It's not exp- so what matters is not the explanation. It's the function. You can retain um, vestiges of previous levels. Law and order person could still demand vengeance, but they just do it through legal channels. And you can only understand one level above your current level. You really understand it fully. Most people in society operate at level four and below and persecute people operating at levels five through seven. And you can look through societies, not just Christian society, Gandhi, and look at what he advocated and practiced, and look at how he was mistreated and persecuted by people who were law and order. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., if you look at his principles, he was clearly a level six and seven operator, and what he advocated and promoted, you know, um, hate can never drive out hate. Uh, light, uh, darkness can never drive out darkness. Only love and light can do that. This is level seven, six and seven principles. But look how he was treated also by the people at level four. The groom and his bride. Christ is returning for his bride, which is the church. But he's not coming back for a child bride. He's coming back for a mature bride. One who has grown up and is ready to see him face to face, for we are like him. I challenge you to leave the elementary teachings behind, and let's move on to maturity. And we have time and I, for, for questions, if we'd like to have a discussion. And it's okay to disagree with me. You know, Paul, Paul says in Romans, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Uh, I'm not here to do anybody's thinking for you. I'm not your mind for you. I presented ideas and concepts, and now it's up to you to wrestle them out, look at the evidence, research it, come to your own conclusion. And it's okay to disagree with me. Yeah. Could you elaborate on the idea of design law? You mentioned the law of health. What other one? So the biggest one is the law of love. God, who is love, created reality to operate in harmony with his own nature. He did not create reality out of harmony. And the law of love functionally is the principle of beneficence and giving. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide to the plants. The plants give oxygen back to you. A never-ending circle of giving upon which life is built. It's a law of love built right into nature. Now, you are free to transgress the law. You can take a plastic bag, tie it over your head, selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself. But the wages of that is... Death, this is what Scripture is teaching us. Whenever you step out of harmony with God's design laws, it results in ruin and death. When was the last time you got up in the morning and said, oh, man, I've got to breathe today? <laughs> 12 breaths a minute, let's see, 60 minutes in an hour, 20 hours, that's a lot of breathing. No, you see, you don't even think about it. When you're healthy, 
Breathing is, is, is not a chore at all. In fact, it's a joy to take a deep breath. It feels good to breathe. But when we're really sick, bad COPD or bad lung disease, breathing can become painful. We might even need an artificial respirator to help us breathe. I'm going to tell you guys a secret. When God finishes his work in our hearts, it will be as easy to love other people as it is to breathe. Right now, most of us are sick in heart, and we're on artificial love respiration where we really need that sustaining operating power. But the goal in the end, if you read the the fruits of the Spirit, is the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control or self-governance. We surrender to the Holy Spirit. Surrender to the Holy Spirit. He fixes what's broken in us and sets us free to love and to live in governance of ourselves. That's the goal. Yes. So Kohlberg, uh, a psychologist, came up with six levels of moral development. They're not exactly like mine. Um, and so his concept stimulated my thoughts, and then I went and researched Scripture and modified some of the things he wrote and from, from Scripture principles and added a seventh level that he doesn't have. So I can't say that it's, it's completely original, but it is modified based on Scripture and expanded. Yes, way in the back. No, they're exactly right. And in fact, um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. You actually can't love others if you don't have a healthy, godly love. This is not a narcissistic love. This is a healthy, godly love for yourself. If you don't have love in your own heart first, you have no love to share with other people. And what is it that, that does? This is the nature of what sin does. When you sin, it gives you a conviction of guilt, incites fear. Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, they ran because they were afraid. And shame. Guilt, fear, and shame cause you to form beliefs in your head. The beliefs in your head are, if people saw my ugly, dirty self, my nasty, disgusting, sinful self, they would hate me. They wouldn't love me. I would be rejected. And so that fear, guilt, and shame cause us to run and isolate. Adam and Eve ran and hid because they were afraid, because they were naked. They felt exposed. And so what did they do? They got leaves to cover their nakedness. This is what we do, we get our masks, our facades, we come out in public, and we have our public masks, but pe- and people eventually will say, oh, I love you, but you would think in your heart, oh, but you don't even know me, because if you knew me, you wouldn't love me, that's my mask you love. And so we have this sense of isolation, but we're constantly living in fear, because we really don't feel like people know our true selves, and, we, and this is what the purpose of the church is for. It tells us we are to confess our sins one to another. What that really is about in order to experience that love for self, we have to experience the grace of God, not as a legal, mechanistic application, but as a reality in our life where we have been exposed. People have seen the ugly, wicked thing that we're terrified that if they see it, they'll hate us for it. And they don't hate us. They love us. They haven't rejected us. They want to help us. This is the 12 steps. Hey, I'm Joe. I'm an alcoholic. Welcome, Joe. I'm not rejected for being an alcoholic. You don't hate me for it? No, we love you. We want to help you get victory over this addiction that's killing you. Hey, I'm Joe. I'm a sinner. Welcome. We love you. 
even though you're struggling with sin in your life, we want to help you meet Christ, power higher than yourself, that can restore you to sanity, that can free you, and, and, once, and that's the being reborn. And when you're reborn, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So you have a new heart with new motives, and you don't live in that fear, and you don't live in that shame, and you don't live in that guilt. You, you have such joy that you have been freed from all of that, that you might have a historical facts that you can look back on in your life and say, yeah, those things were terrible, but that's not who I am now. I'm a new person in Christ. And so the fear and shame is gone, and you're able now to love others. But it really requires that. I'll tell you, if, if Henry, I'm not... Promoting a movie, but I'm going to ask you, how many have seen Bohemian Rhapsody? Anybody? Bohemian Rhapsody is about um, Freddie Mercury and the lead singer for Queen. I saw that movie, and I will tell you, I don't think they intended it, but I thought it was a powerful revelation of a soul in pain looking for love. His entire life... And his songs reveal it. Can't I find somebody to love? Can I ever find somebody to love me? In his entire life, all the crazy stuff and the wild living and the partying and all that stuff, his heart was desperately searching for love and he was trying to find somebody to love him, somebody to fill the void. And, uh, and, and I'm not sure that he ever found him. I'm not going to say he didn't. I don't know the end of his life. But it, what you see publicly, he was always in pain, always searching. And it was so powerful to show that's where we go when we don't have the love of Christ in our life. And it was so, he seemed, I will tell you, he seemed, the way it was depicted in the movie, he seemed like a good person, meaning he wanted to find love. He wanted to find wholeness. He, want, he just never found Christ. He wasn't an evil person seeking to exploit. He was searching for something to fill his heart. You understand the difference of what I'm saying? But he did a lot of destructive things, primarily to himself. It was very sad. And so I think we really aren't going to be in a position to help until we find and experience that freedom in Christ, that we are loved in spite of that, and he wants to free us. Now, I'll give you some metaphors to help you, help you with this idea. And by the way, the penal legal model leaves us with the facades and leaves us, it's only the healing model, the design that really sets you free. So let's imagine this, that you were, uh, your name has come up in this church to work in the children's department. Somebody's nominated you to be the head of a children's uh, you know, Sunday school class or something. And as the, as the nominating committee and the church board's discussing whether you're going to be authorized, somebody says, wait, 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 before you vote them into office, you need to know when they were seven years of age, they had, they had terrible vomiting and diarrhea all over their mother's couch and, and carpet. What would the board do? Would they go, why are you telling us this? And and the person goes, well, it was gross. It was disgusting. Uh, Okay, I'm sure it was. but, But wouldn't somebody go, but are they vomiting and having diarrhea now? That's really the relevant. Are they sick right now? Well, no, they're actually quite healthy right now. Well, then what difference does it make? You see, that's historic sin. You can look back in your life. Well, he visited prostitutes. Judah. Remember Judah? Visited prostitutes. He visited prostitutes. Okay, maybe he did. Is he still visiting prostitutes? Or has he come to Christ? Well, he actually had an adulterous relationship with one of his soldiers' wives and then murdered the soldier. Okay. Is he still having adulterous relations, still murdering his own soldiers? Or had he, has he had a heart change? Has he been healed in the inner man? Has he been renewed? You look back, see, David, through all eternity future... Will always, it will always be true that he had a relationship with 
Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. That's a historical fact. That never changes. What did change was David's heart. He got a new heart and right spirit. He was changing the inner man. If you look at his life after that, he never did anything like that again. He was different. He was now safe. And so you look back on your own past, you say, there's some ugly things. Yeah, there are. That's not the question. I had bad diarrhea, bad vomiting. It was ugly. It's, it was nasty. <laughs> but, but am I sick today? That's the question. Do I still have those same things and living those same ways, or have I been changed? And you can be at peace. You don't have to live in fear of the past. There's a question over here. So, yes, I'm okay, you're okay, uh, young people, it's, uh, whatever you want to do is good with me, everybody do is good with you, okay? That, and, and this is the idea also articulated under the idea um, that we are all free to believe whatever we want, that we have, um, you know, freedom of conscience, and we shouldn't uh, tell other people what to believe. That's exactly true. We have the freedom, and we respect that freedom, but see, just because we have the freedom to believe whatever we want, which you're talking about, does that mean all beliefs are equally healthy? And that's where you have to go back to design law. Yes, you can do it that way. You're, I have one patient who believes cigarette smoke helps her lungs work better. <laughs> now, she is free to believe that, right? Yes. yes. But that is not as healthy as believing that it's damaging her lungs. You see, people are free to choose their beliefs. People are free to believe in a punishing, angry God or to believe there is no God. But that's not as healthy as believing there's a God that's like Jesus revealed. And so I go down the trail of uh, saying, well, tell me about those beliefs. Well, you're free to believe that, but then I connect it to the, some design laws. All, there's all, everything's connected to design law, whether it's a physical design law, whether it's a moral design law. See, uh, I've had some people say, I, I get you on the laws of health and the laws of physics. I get God. To, I don't get it on the moral laws. It seems like the Ten Commandments are, are rules. They're not, they're not design laws. Okay, why is it wrong for a man or a woman to commit adultery and cheat on their spouse? And their spouse never finds out. Spouse doesn't know they're cheating. Is the only problem with that, well, God has a book, and he has an angel, and he's recording, and every time he does, it's another ticket he writes in heaven that one day someone's going to have to pay a price for. That's what makes it wrong, because God has a rule, and you're breaking the rule. Or does the person who commits adultery sear their conscience, warp their character, harden their heart? They actually accelerate and have more anxiety and fear. They begin worrying about all the lies and the stories. They develop a character of a liar because they have to tell all these stories of where they're at and where they're not there to, to, to deceive the spouse and what they're doing. What, what's happening? Can they avoid the destructive consequence to their soul? No, that's design law. All the moral laws are design laws. And, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and whenever you violate them, you warp yourself, damage yourself. I have patients who've been abused as kids that, that struggle with forgiving their abuser. You know, in therapy, there always comes a time as working with a, a post-abuse victim where they have anger and they have resentment, and that anger and resentment is, is eating them up. And in order to free themselves from it, they need to forgive their abuser, but they struggle with that. And they struggle with it because the abuser, the uncle, the grandfather, whoever it was, was never arrested, was never caught, was never punished. And so they have this idea in their mind, if I forgive, they get away with it. It's not fair. I'm not going to let them get I'm going to hold them accountable. And so I asked the question. This really goes back to design law, understanding the nature of sin. It's not under, under imperialism, the nature of sin is breaking a rule and it requires punishment. Under design law, the nature of sin is it's violating the laws upon which God built reality and destroys the sinner. So I go back to this question, I understand that. I say, so let me ask you this. Who do you think got damaged? Very, very critical word, damaged. 
Not hurt. Hurt could mean damage, but it could mean just feeling bad. So don't use hurt. Damaged. Who got damaged worse when your uncle was molesting you? You or your uncle? They always say themselves. Always. I say, okay, let's, let's use this scenario. Imagine this. God takes you to heaven right now, and he says, I'm going to give you one choice between option A or option B. You pick one. Option A, I'm going to send you back to earth. Your life is exactly as it's always been. Nothing changes. You just live your life. Option B, I will let you trade lives with your uncle. You get to go around molesting kids, but no one molests you. Whose life do you choose? 100% of my patients choose their own. I go, well, if you got damage worse, why? And the light goes on. You see, when someone sins against you, they can damage your body. They can damage your emotions. They can damage your, your psychological thinking patterns. But they cannot damage your soul. Your conscience remains clear. But when you sin against somebody else, you sear your conscience, you warp your character, you damage your own soul. Something much more precious. That's why Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but can't destroy the soul. And when they realize that, they they don't have to hold them accountable. That person is already hardening their heart, warping their character, corrupting their inner being. And they can't avoid it. It's It's design law. Do you see the design law? And do you see when you come back to that beauty of it, then you can actually free yourself and feel actually sad for them. I'm so sad for them. Other questions? We have about three minutes. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it, when you say generational, I think that a couple of these generations have been very much fed a legal system of religion, and then they go out into the real world, and the rules that they were told to keep don't actually work in the real world, or they're challenged by professors or others that are working. Most of your uh, evolutionary biologists and professors that challenge your kids, they are tr- they're working on design law. They're talking about the laws of nature and how reality works. And, and, and even though they don't believe in God, they have many principles of nature that overrule simply a rules-oriented approach, and your kids realize that that's more sensible, and, and we haven't taught them a God whose laws are design laws so that we can actually show that, that, that understanding it through a, a creator lens is actually more sensible than the evolutionary lens, and so they are vulnerable to throwing off the whole thing because it doesn't make sense when we just do the rules-oriented approach. Yeah, and I think uh, my, I, I was raised on the rules, too, and I didn't leave the church. I just dug in and studied and studied and studied. I believed God was real, but I knew something was wrong in what I was told about him. And it took, I will tell you, thousands and thousands of hours and years of study. To, 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 and and the one of, here's another design law, guys. This all law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. And the more you study God's word, digging into it, the, you, will, you will create new neural pathways. The Holy Spirit will enlighten your mind. You will not only, you will grow in your knowledge and insight and your character. The more you exercise your capacities for studying and moving forward in God's word. <coughs> Same thing in your relationships. The more you love your spouse, and I mean not just emotional feelings, but love them in action, you get greater capacities for love. Your love in that relationship grows. It doesn't stay stagnant. But you have to exercise love in order for it to grow. Isn't it true? Yeah. All righty. Thank you guys very much.
Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.